Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Candy Can, editor of the new collection Dying to Eat, Cross-Cultural Perspectives on Food, Death, and the Afterlife, published by University Press of Kentucky in 2018. Dr. Candy K. Can is Associate Professor of Religion at Baylor, Baylor University. Dr. Can's research focuses on death and dying, and the impact of remembering and forgetting in shaping how lives are recalled, remembered, and celebrated. She's author of the 2014 book, Virtual Afterlives, Grieving the Dead in the 21st Century, and editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Death and Afterlife. Candy, thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we always start the conversation with some background. Um, on your website, you describe yourself as a death studies scholar. Uh, so maybe define that for our listeners. Uh, but also, how did you come to study death and dying? And then what led you to think about those intersections with food? That's a great question, Carrie. So I first took my, um, I I took the very first death and dying course when I was in graduate school at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. And it was death and dying in Buddhist cultures. And it was a six week summer school program. And every Saturday we would meet all day in a different Buddhist temple in Hawaii. So one Saturday was Chinese Buddhism. Another Saturday was Vietnamese Buddhism. Another Saturday was Japanese Buddhism. And as a part of that course, we would have a vegetarian Buddhist meal for that particular culture for lunch. And then we would also do um, funerary chants and read the relevant book. For example, when we did Tibetan Buddhism, we did the, um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, so it, for me, death and dying has always been deeply integrated with food because that's the way I was introduced to the subject. And I absolutely loved that course. And all I wanted to do um, for the rest of my life is replicate that course somehow in my work and in my um, research, um, stuff like that. Yeah, so what your first book um, on virtual, um, sorry, <laughs> virtual afterlives, uh, is there a food component to that or is there, um, is this a new intervention in food studies? So that one does not have a food component. With that one, I had been watching um, the rise of these new forms of memorial ritualization emerging on uh, social media. And really, that kind of started when a, a friend of my cousin's died, and people, he died rather suddenly at the age of 28. Um, and people were posting all kinds of memories and letters, and then there was a little bit of a skirmish between a present-day girlfriend and a past girlfriend. And, and it just became really interesting to me 
um, as I watched this memorialization occur. And, and so that was really um, the beginning of virtual afterlives. So what's the significance of food and death rituals? You give a, a wide ranging overview in the introduction. Um, but what can we learn about ourselves by looking at how our cultures use food around the moments of death? Well, so this is really interesting. I, um, as I began researching this book, I really started thinking about the way that food and death intersect. Um, so you get various studies on food, right? You have food as a direct cause in preventing prolonging or causing death, you know, from starvation, um, or even in hospice care, one of the best things you can do if someone's dying and suffering to reduce the suffering, you actually decrease um, the hydration and decrease the food intake. And that will help with, um, it will reduce the suffering that the dying patient's experiencing because it's really hard to have a bowel movement if you are dying, okay, and in pain. And so there's really interesting intersections there, right? And then you have studies on food in terms of food scarcity or food abundance um, and the role of food in economic development or colonization. Uh, so in that way, you have these macro studies in which you're trying to prevent death um, on a large social scale. I noticed there were lots of studies on feasting and fasting and the relationship of food to celebrating saints and martyrs, um, the general role of food or the absence of food in religious asceticism and practices. Um, there are studies that explore dietary restrictions or food symbolism in religious text and practice. You have anthropological studies and explorations of food. You have sociological examinations of food ways as a form of cultural identity. Um, there's just food as a gender marker in relationship to marginalized discourse and power. So I really wanted to kind of contribute to all these many rich ways of examining food. Um, but I really wanted to look at the relationship between food and death by offering an interdisciplinary approach to that intersection and to utilize various different tensions um, in those different disciplines. So I feel like for me, if you look at the subject from the sociological perspective, but you miss out on the anthropological perspective, I, I feel like it's one-sided, right? So I really wanted to try to conduct an interdisciplinary examination of the subject of food and death. Yeah, I definitely felt that interdisciplinarity through the reading. Um, and it does seem that, you know, a lot of the contributors come from religious studies backgrounds, uh, others from anthropology. So maybe talk a little bit more about some of those interdisciplinary fields and maybe what we can discover by linking them together. Yeah, so my home discipline is actually religious studies. Um, and I did my PhD at Harvard, and I lived in the Center for the Study of World Religion. So I've always looked at religion from a multicultural and pluralistic perspective. Um, but I think one of the important things that, you know, has happened in academia is we've become so siloed in these individual disciplines that we forget to look for what other um, disciplines might contribute or teach us. So I really 
feel that one of the best ways we can decolonize any kind of academic discipline is to look at things through an interdisciplinary lens. Now, obviously, it's really hard to do that because I'm not an expert in other uh, fields of study. And, um, you know, at best, I'm an armchair academic and in other study in other areas. But by bringing together an edited collection of various experts who have kind of marinated, if you will, um, their entire lives and certain perspectives and certain disciplines. And I feel like you can really create a much richer um, text. So we, we had a thanatologist, we had actually a practicing rabbi, we had someone who works in food studies. Um, there was someone who's a nurse who works in um, the health field. We had another person who worked really specifically in um, Chinese studies. And then there's me. There's someone who works in um, Muslim uh, politics and um, political science. So, yeah, I really felt like this collection was so rich and so unique because we had a variety of perspectives and disciplines. Yeah, I've, I've lately done a lot of these interviews with the editors of edited collections, and I'm sort of fascinated by the process of where do you find contributors? So if you write this call for papers, which listservs do you put on, on to get those varying points of views? So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that, that process. How did you come to um, find contributors? That's a great question. But um, I actually looked for them. So I didn't really put out a call. I did put out a call, but really most of those contributors came from me writing them and saying, I like the way you wrote about this. And, and do you think you'd be interested in writing about this? Um, so, and, and one, Krista Shusko, I, I went to the American Academy of Religion Conference to the food studies group. And I like sat in on her paper presentation and thought it was perfect. So I waited till the end and, and pounced on her and said, I'm working on this project. Do you think you would be interested in contributing? So I think part of it is just, um, I, I, you become like an editorial scout and looking for the pieces that you think are still missing. I think that's fantastic. That's great. Um, the, the collection is also really broadly distributed globally uh, across lots of religious points of view, but also sort of global cultural points of view. Uh, and I think your essay is a really good example of some of those cross-cultural connections, uh, bringing together China, Mexico, and Texas. And we'll talk more about your essay a little bit later. Uh, but, but why did you want to do that kind of global comparison as well? What, what emerges from that kind of thinking? So for me, um, like I said, my background is actually quite broad. Um, I lived in China for six years. I lived in Thailand as a child. Um, as an adult, I lived in Argentina for like five years with my family. So I, I have really um, traveled a lot and lived in many various places. And I feel like when you do that, you realize that um, the academy is not just siloed in discipline. It's also siloed in its Western perspective. And it's, it's so deeply entrenched in the kind of white Protestant Western perspective. Um, this post-Enlightenment era perspective emerges from that. And I feel like um, 
it's our duty as academics to uh, bring in the real diversity, the cultural diversity, um, and the pluralistic perspectives of other places. And if I'm really going to write a book that's comprehensive and it's and dynamic in its perspective, then I needed to look at things from a much more global um, point of view. Well said. Uh, the collection is divided into two parts, and I found this to be like a really useful uh, division, but also kind of a fascinating thought. Uh, the first half examines rituals where food is offered to the deceased uh, or to the ancestors, and then the second half focuses on food for mourners. Uh, and again, that's not a distinction I really thought about, perhaps because of that Western siloing you're talking about. Uh, but talk a little bit about the the, the significance of that distinction. Yeah, that's become a really important distinction that really underlies all of my work. Um, in the West and in the United States in particular, we focus on grief from this notion that we're remembering the dead, that the dead have left and um, they are no longer with us in any form. And I think that there is somewhat of a kind of reaction to that through things like folklore and ghost stories. Um, you know, you get this notion that the dead are somehow trying to reinsert themselves into the world of the living. Um, and death studies scholar Tony Walter, he's out at the University of Bath, he argues that some cultures actually care for the dead in their memorialization practices while others remember the dead. And I would say that in general, Protestant cultures tend to focus on remembering the dead, which means that you're utilizing memorialization practices that focus on reintegrating the community without the deceased. Um, so the function is really different between these two. Caring for the dead is basically a renegotiation of the status of the deceased person. Um, and it allows the living to retain an active and participatory relationship with the dead in their new state. Whereas remembering the dead is kind of renegotiating life without the deceased. So I would say that caring for the dead um, tends to be the dominant model that we see in uh, non-Western countries and even in uh, Catholic perspectives. Uh, so you know, there's this notion in which the dead still interact with us in some way and that we can still care for them. We can make offerings for them at the gravestone, for example, in Mexico, in Dia de los Muertos. Um, in Japan, for example, you in Japanese Buddhism, you make offerings every day um, to the tablet that represents the spirit of the deceased. And, and you keep that tablet in your home. So in this way, you're renegotiating the status of the person that has died and you're allowing them to re-enter into your life in their new status. Now, remembering the dead for me is completely different. And in this one, the memorialization practices are all about, okay, now the deceased is gone and we have to bring the community back together and renegotiate all of our relationships with each other without that deceased person. And so the memorialization practices there become much more about telling stories, um, kind of remembering 
as opposed to actively feeding and caring for the dead. That's a good explanation of that. And I, I think you also link that to some changes that are happening in contemporary practice, especially in the United States, um, that maybe the, the extension of that idea is that we've, uh, as you write, grief has become pathologized. Bereavement leave is shortened and individuals have been forces to create have been forced to create in their own do-it-yourself rituals of mourning and give expression to their grief. Uh, so maybe talk about how that idea of um, caring for the dead, remembering the dead, and then what you call continuing bonds theory uh, might offer a challenge to some of those issues. And, and what part does food play in continuing bonds? Okay, so continuing bonds theory is initially written by um, Dennis Class, Nickman, and Silverman. They write a book called uh, Continuing Bonds. And Dennis Class actually spent a lot of time in Japan. And I feel like it was his uh, time in Japan that really influenced the way he developed the series of Continuing Bonds. And Continuing Bonds is very popular in the UK and it's, it's really gaining some traction in Europe. It has not thus far really been that popular here in the United States. Um, but ultimately, it's about continuing bonds is, is a type of grief theory that says that in order to grieve healthily, we have to somehow develop a relationship with the deceased and integrate them into our everyday lives. And not only is that something that's good, but it's, it's something that will help us to move forward in our grief. Now, I'm a huge proponent of continuing bonds theory, um, and I believe that I really hope that it, it takes over the stage-based um, grief theories that are currently so popular in the United States. Um, you know, these theories that, oh, you have to work through these five stages and only until you work up to the fifth stage, well, you have really managed your grief well. And the reality is that grief is messy and that grief never actually ends. It's something you learn to live with and kind of... Um, figure out how to do life every day as you're grieving. It's not something you work through. And, and so I think that's been very unhealthy for us as a society and very unhealthy for individuals because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm still grieving. What's wrong with me? I haven't managed to accept the fact that this person is gone. Therefore, I am not doing well. And, and that's just not the case. Grief is something that you live with and, and death is devastating and it absolutely changes the landscape of your life. And the reality is if you can learn how to live with that grief and grapple with that grief and somehow renegotiate a relationship with the deceased, then you're going to be able to move through life in a way that feels much more integrated. Um, actually, I think I got a little off topic here, but so this is part of my big, I, I guess you could say it's, it's kind of the underlying current of all of my work. I want people to realize that it's okay to grieve. I want people to realize that yes, death is devastating. And I want people to realize it normal, that it's not something unusual to experience. And the main problem here is that our culture doesn't allow us to grieve. It doesn't want to have conversations surrounding death and dying. 
And we're not given time from work to even grieve. I mean, most companies give you maybe three days or five days, if you're lucky, to put all the estate in order and get your affairs in order. And, and that's not at all enough time to actually work through all of this stuff. So this is where I feel like food can become absolutely essential and helpful in helping us to grieve. When you, for example, make grandma's pie that she used to always make every Thanksgiving, and you share that at Thanksgiving with your family and then your kids, and you can share these stories about grandma and how you used to help her make that pie every year. This is the kind of stuff that heals us, being able to tell these stories, being able to share these narratives, and then being able to pass that on to your kids. Because one of the things you're doing when you talk about your grandma who's died, that you're able to make this pie with your kids and share those experiences, you're also explaining to your kids that it's normal to grieve, that it's normal to die, that everyone will die at some point. And you're teaching them, you're modeling to your kids how to grieve in a way that you allow yourself to go on living. And now you found joy in sharing stories of grandma with your children. And so in that way, we kind of learn to pass on um, this beautiful family legacy and tradition. That's excellent. And I think I encounter this a lot in my own scholarship around cookbooks and, and the stories that get told in cookbooks, how often they are about departed family members and mm-hmm. how often the stories are about reliving and re-experiencing those kind of joyful past memories. Yeah. Yeah. I love um, yeah. <laughs> so elsewhere, the, throughout the collection, uh, again, lots of cultures, lots of geography, lots of religions, uh, historical contemporary, right? This mixture of all of these things. What kind of uh, connections do you see between the individual pieces? What do they have in common? So I think all of them are about nourishing, right? They're not just nourishing our bodies, they're nourishing our souls. And and these recipes tell stories. They they tell stories of little tweaks that, you know, your mom made to the recipe, little tweaks that your grandma made to the recipe. They their heritage. I mean, these recipes are who we are in many ways. It's it's who we nourished our bodies and our grandparents have nourished their bodies and our great-grandparents have nourished their bodies with these same recipes that have been passed down from generation to generation. Um, They're also tangible. And I love that about um, food, that it's a material kind of conduit, if you will. It ties us um, through something that we can touch and taste and smell. And so in that way, it really brings these not just memories, but it brings the memories to life and allows us to relive these experiences. Um, so for me, I, I absolutely think that the thing that ties all of these pieces together is the fact that food is our legacy and the way we express ourselves and our identities and our family identities um, is, in fact, through food. So talk a little bit more about your essay in the collection. So again, you make this comparison between China, Mexico, and U.S. or or Texas uh, through the presence of sugar, starch, and alcohol. Uh, Mm -hmm. So why sugar, first of all, as kind of the food that binds them? And what is its function in each of those cultures? 
Okay, so um, that's a great question. So sugar, of course, has a rich, rich history. And I'm tell, I think one of the reasons I wanted to focus on sugar is because it becomes a great symbol of um, colonization. And in order to decolonize food studies and in order to decolonize the discipline in general, um, I really wanted to offer a critique through sugar. So up until the 17th century... Um, sugar was actually considered a, a luxury staple. It's a rare food. It's expensive. And part of that is because um, it's slave labor that produces sugar, right? So it's, it's a labor-intensive crop. Um, and up until the last two centuries, sugar and sugary treats were luxuries that were rarely afforded. And they also kind of were symbols in, of class. Um, and until the use of the British um, of sugar in their tea and then later Americans in their coffee, sugar was really viewed as a spice, an occasional condiment that added sweetness or enhanced the flavor of foods. Unlike the contemporary view of sugar today as a staple of, of cooking and of baking. So it also marks a transition in the world economy from the old world to the new world. Um, with sugar's dependency on large amounts of labor, sugar became a privileged realm of colonial countries with their access to large tracts of land and their reliance on slave labor. And until the 17th and 18th centuries, you really see honey as the primary sweetener of choice. So the transition of dependence on sugar marks an equally significant transition to a reliance on the new world. And, and this kind of colonialist project is symbolized by sugar. So I don't think it's a small coincidence that sugar plays a huge role in bereavement and memorialization practices in Mexico and the United States and then in China as well. So in Mexico, um, you have a lot of the uh, the sugar skulls uh, are, are, you know, a huge symbol of Dia de los Muertos. Um, in the United States, you have the passing out of sugary candies for Halloween or All Hallows' Eve. And then in China, um, you have sugary foods such as ching twin or rice cakes and then sugar wine. And actually, also, you pass out these, um, it's like a brown sugar hard candy. You pass them out at funerals because believe that if you go home in China after a funeral without a piece of candy in your mouth, then the bad luck will follow you and, and the ghost of the deceased will follow you home. So by sweetening um, the flavor in your mouth with this hard candy, then it ensures that you have only good luck. So sugar is huge <laughs> in all these kind of uh, death rituals and memorialization rituals. And I just really am fascinated by uh, the role of sugar here. The other thing, of course, is the brain and body chemistry of sugar. It releases endorphins of pleasure and relaxation, unlike a lot of foods, um, with perhaps the exception of drugs and alcohol. Um, so sugar creates a measurable chemical pleasure response in the body. And so I would say that, you know, sugar really becomes a central feature in many of these kind of uh, memorialization rituals, partly because it offers a way to numb, if you will, uh, the bitter experience of death and grief. It's fascinating. I learned so much by reading your chapter. 
while it may seem more intuitive to think that Mexico and Texas would be more similar in practice, uh, you instead argue that like China and Mexico have more in common. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit more about those significance of those the differences and the connections that you see kind of uh, across those cultures. Sure. So I, um, again, this goes back to the whole caring for the dead versus remembering the dead distinction. And Mexico and China both actively care for the dead, right? So in Mexico, you hold a wake, you bring all of the family into the funeral home, you often set up a shrine to the deceased and you feed them their favorite foods. You also feed them their favorite drinks, which may or may not include alcohol. More often it does. You might even give them cigarettes if they smoke. Um, so there's this notion, even in the early stages, that you are uh, taking care of the dead. In China, the same thing. Um, you never leave the deceased body alone by itself. It is watched over until it is buried um, by the family. And uh, and then you also have a huge feast. And part of the function of the feast, too, was to feed the community, right? So that um, death also served a communal aspect and, and kind of tying the community back together, but also feeding them and sustaining them. Um, so in Mexico, you have these memorialization practices um, like Dia de los Muertos. You go to the grave. You actually sweep the grave. You, again, bring their favorite foods. You feed them. And in China, you have um, Qingming, which is um, it's a grave sweeping ceremony and it's kind of like thanksgiving at the grave you go out to the family ancestral plot you clean everything up you um you know sweep the grave you weed all the plants and make sure it looks beautiful and then again you make certain offerings of food and you offer alcohol um so you you are deliberately caring for the grave I spent a lot of years in Hawaii growing up, and um, there's a beautiful uh, Chinese cemetery. And it, it's not uncommon to just drive by the cemetery and see all of these foods on top of the graves. And I don't know what that's like, like for, for the people trying to take care of the cemetery, because they must have like a huge rat problem. But um, I would drive by and see, you know, these Big Macs and milkshakes. And so, you know, it's customary to actually take care of the dead. Now in Texas, um, it's changing all the time because it's a border state. Um, and we're seeing an influx of, of a lot of um, Catholic immigrants. But there's also a strong influence of Protestant culture. You have these pockets of, you know, uh, Texas German immigrants. You have um, uh, pockets of uh, English immigrants, a heavy influence of Protestantism with uh, SMU being Methodist, Baylor being Baptist. So I think the two strongest um, Protestant denominations that are present in Texas tend to be Methodist and Baptist. And, and these are very heavily um, influenced by the notion of remembering the dead. So the function there is not caring for the dead. And in fact, that would go against um, 
Protestant theology where you're, you know, you're supposedly resurrected and you're, you're in heaven with God. So any notion of feeding the dead would go against that idea, right? Because they're now with God. There's no reason to take care of them anymore. Um, supposedly they've been released from all their worldly concerns. So you have a really different theological take here on the function of memorial feasts, which is primarily centered around caring for the community. So here you see churches come together um, to host large um, funeral feasts for the community. And the foods there are very different. Um, It's interesting. They're not the favorite foods of the deceased. They're large portable casseroles. They're um, reheatable casseroles. Uh, Because the assumption is one may not be able to finish everything. So you want to reheat it and feed the family in their uh, grief and during their mourning times. Um, So the notion of the food's function is quite different. They're large communally shared uh, dishes that are supposed to feed and nourish a community as opposed to being symbolic of the foods that the deceased really liked. Yeah, that's a big difference, right? And and as a Texas Baptist myself, this is the part that most rang very true to my experiences, right? Things that I uh, witnessed myself. One of the interesting things about this collection is that you include a recipe or, or even two recipes uh, with some essays. Where did that idea to include recipes come from and why would you want to include them? So I really wanted recipes because I wanted something that people could replicate since, you know, we're talking about recipes that are also legacies in many ways and recipes that have been passed down from generation to generation and they symbolize so much. I really wanted um, something that people could recreate in their own kitchen. Now, the problem with that is, can you really do that? And that there's an aspect of, you know, colonizing in that as well, right? Um, can you really appropriate a recipe and, and, and should you and all of that? It doesn't necessarily have the same meaning. But I really wanted people to, if they wanted, um, to be able to visit these different places and to kind of replicate the experience in, in their own home. Was that something that the contributors had ready? Did you have to ask them? Talk about that process a little bit. I had to ask them. And and uh, it was part of the way I envisioned the book coming together because I wanted it to kind of symbolize a meal. Although, so originally it was going to be a meal and there was going to be appetizers and then the entrees and then the dessert. But as I was working on the book, I realized it would be better to frame it um, from the grief theory perspective of remembering the dead to caring for the dead. So that changed the, uh, the way the book was laid out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I had to ask them. And, and I just love food. I mean, I, I feel like you can learn so much about someone um, by their food choices and their food preferences. So yeah, and I really liked um, like Emily Wu's chapter on the twice cooked pork. It's so interesting to me because it's such a symbol of 
status and wealth in Chinese culture that you're able to purchase support, but then that you can actually have that kind of time to make that dish, right? So there, there's a double meaning of that status. Um, but I'm a vegetarian, and I've been a vegetarian for 30 years. And, and you know, because I think about the ethical choices for animals and, and what kind of, you know, agency do they have? Very little, right? Um, so it, it's interesting to put a book collection together like this with so many different recipes. What are some of the maybe must reads in the collection? I won't ask you to kind of make the arguments for any of those pieces, but could you point to a few that you think maybe make important contributions to the conversation? So I think one of my favorites was um, Josh Graham, because he writes about the role of funeral foods in the American South. And he talks about how foods function and helping Southerners come to terms with their grief. Um, and he examines the role of food and drink, but he even examines the absence of, of certain things, like the absence of alcohol, which is really common in Southern Baptist culture. Um, and I really loved his chapter, too, because he focused on the role of women. And I know, Carrie, you and I were talking in the break about your grandma and how she always brought Texas sheet cake um, to funerals. And then one of the things that Josh highlights in his chapter is how certain communities, it becomes a, a particular dish will become known uh, as belonging to a particular person. So then a funeral, um, it becomes, at a funeral, it becomes really symbolic to have these dishes as part of the funeral repast or part of the funeral feast, because it's also demonstrating to the rest of the community that that particular family is present and that they are supporting um, the deceased family and stuff like that. So I found Josh's chapter just really fascinating to me, also because I just don't really understand Southern culture. <laughs> well, that one was obviously my favorite as well, uh, because really? of my, my own study. So my, again, my research agendas in Southern foodways and Southern food studies. So that was definitely uh, a highlight for me as well. That's uh, yeah. The role of women in, in Southern culture is really demonstrated through food. Yeah. Yeah. Other um, essays you want to highlight? Well, I also really liked, um, I talked about Emily Wu's chapter earlier, but I really liked Krista Shusko's chapter, mainly because it didn't fit in the same way that some of the other chapters. So hers is the last one, and she focuses on alcohol drinking rituals um, in male fraternity groups. And I thought that was so interesting because in contrast to Josh's chapter, she's looking at gender. And the way that alcohol and gender roles kind of mesh together um, and reflect status and uh, community. So that was another one. In, in her chapter, actually, I felt like there was a part two to my sugar chapter, um, which was, in fact, the alcohol chapter. And so I ended up writing another article for another journal about the role of alcohol in Mexico and China and Texas, in particular Southern Baptist. So those two really kind of influenced me because I was thinking about, you know, I, I guess I was, I was, I was interested in the role of alcohol and the role of abstinence in shaping 
gender roles and status in society. And, and I had just not really thought about that until I read their two chapters. My other favorite is um, Raddy Kobo's chapter. Um, he examines the intersection of food and death among the Zwana and Zulu people in South Africa. And I thought that was fascinating. One, because it was just such a rich ethnography of funeral food culture. But the other, because he really did a beautiful job of talking about how funerals also serve to sustain the living and that funerals function as a form of economic sustainability in in a culture of scarcity. So I thought that was fascinating. And um, he ended up contributing to my next book as well, because I just loved the the chapter that he wrote and um, I found it so rich. Yeah, any edited collection is also inevitably going to have gaps. Are there any gaps or spaces in the collection, essays that you would have liked to have seen or things that you kind of discovered afterward were missing? Well, I would have loved to have had some European scholars contributing here. And originally I did have one, but she ended up dropping out um, for personal reasons. So um, that would have definitely made it richer. Um, and then maybe some historical pieces. I mean, obviously, anytime you get interested in a subject, you, you just, <laughs> you know, there, there's so much you could look at. So, um, yeah, I would love to see a book on, on drinking and death, uh, eventually. I think that would be interesting. And then the other thing would probably be the more popular side. Um, one of my, colleagues in the death space. Michael Hebb has written a book on um, death over dinner and I love his work. And, and he's, you know, it started this amazing movement um, where people come together and actually discuss death and dying over dinner. So that's a little bit of an interesting functional application of using food as a way to commune with others to discuss death and dying. So I love that aspect too. What are some of the intersections of, of death and food studies that we might be looking forward to in the future? Are there some of the some areas that you think food scholars or death study scholars could or should direct their attention? I definitely feel like there's not enough attention um, paid to this intersection of death and food studies. So I hope we see more. Um, and again, I, I think the primary one would be an expansion in terms of Ge geographical studies, so other areas and area studies. Um, there were so many. I, I did an interview with BBC, and we talked about uh, corpse cakes, and that was so fascinating. And then, of course, you have cannibalism. So there are aspects of this that are discussed, but not necessarily in relationship to the field as a whole. Um, there's a lot of undone scholarship here that I think has a lot of potential um, for the future. And then again, I really love this whole, um, there's death cafes and death over dinner. So there's this whole popular movement that's really expanded um, in the last five years or so. In death cafes, you come together and you have, the, the original idea was to have tea and cake. And again, it's this notion of sweetening the conversation, right? So you have this sweet dessert something that draws people in, something that people always want. Um, 
And then they come together and have these difficult conversations while they're eating the sweet dessert. So your work in 21st century virtual afterlives, I think, seems more relevant now than ever. And I know that you're doing some work um, uh, on the current moment. So maybe tell us more about uh, death, grief and funerals in the COVID age. Yeah, so that's this project. Um, When the pandemic started, um, Michael Hebb, who is the one who founded Death Over Dinner and wrote the book on Death Over Dinner. He and I are part of um, the global wellness um, group, and we have started a Dying Well initiative. Um, So he and I got together and were discussing the need to kind of start, uh, I don't know, to really create a paper, if you will, on uh, death and grief and funerals in the COVID era. Because the primary problem right now with... um, COVID-19 is that one, people are dying alone, right? So because it's so contagious, family members and friends can't be with the person as they die. And then two, um, we're not really able to come together um, to have funerals in the way that we would before. So we really wanted to come up with a solution-based paper that would help people through this era. So we um, have published something uh, called the COVID white paper, and you can find it at www.covidwhitepaper.com. It's expanding every day. The New York State Legislature um, just presented it uh, to their constituents. Um, We are working with all kinds of amazing healthcare workers and death care uh, workers and funeral homes, et cetera, et cetera. We were able to get a group of over 80 scholars together to write this white paper. And I really feel like it's an important piece of scholarship. And and more than that, I really hope it helps people. It it gives them tools and resources um, and ideas on how they might be able to honor their loved ones who are dying or have died. Things as simple as, you know, you can still send a note to the hospital. You can still send a card um, so your loved one doesn't have to die completely alone. They can have your card with them to things like, how can I have a funeral and be there with my loved ones if I can't come together and actually have a funeral? Well, you can do things like everyone can have, um, you can drop off candles at your families, houses, and everyone can light the candle at the same time every night. You can have virtual dinners together. Um, One family, they had a drive-by funeral and they flicked their lights in honor of the deceased at um, like at 6 p.m. They did a drive-by parade funeral basically um, for the family of the deceased. So there's lots of creative ways that I think the death industry is... um, is coming up with to help people grieve. But more importantly, since this is a podcast on food, you can set a place for your loved one at the dinner table and you can still have dinner with them and give them their favorite foods and tell stories about them and come together as a family and honor them and remember them. Um, You don't have to um, put everything off. You can do it in creative ways today. Oh, that's really moving. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what are some of the other projects that you're working on next? <laughs> I have several things. So 
One of the things I'm doing, I'm working with a company called Eternaba. They make um, diamonds from cremains and hair. And we are developing a new grieving theory um, out of the continuing bonds. One of the things we've noticed is that um, if you anchor your grief to a material object, such as food, like we've been talking about, um, or say a, a cremains diamond, or even you can make rocks out of cremains. I mean, there's lots of things you can do. But if you anchor your grief to a material object, there's a way in which you can feel comforted because you can have the deceased with you. Um, so we're working on a study on that grief theory, uh, and I'm really excited about that. I'm also doing um, a couple things on new phone apps and grief. There's a lot of uh, development in the past year or so on um, phone apps as people are moving beyond the internet. And then there's some really interesting stuff on um, augmented reality and virtual reality in the death and dying world that I'm super, super interested in. Um, One of the things I think I've become fascinated by lately is uh, transhumanism and its relationship with death and dying. I'm a big fan of talking about death, of preparing for death and, and talking about dying because it's really devastating. It's absolutely difficult and we cannot work through it alone. And I feel like having these kinds of difficult conversations allow us to Maybe not be more prepared, but at least to be comfortable in having the kind of conversations that we need to have in order to um, move through these difficult times. That is all very fascinating. I can't (laughs) wait. Um, This is not an area that I often spend a lot of time in, right? Uh, As you mentioned, it's kind of difficult. But as soon as you begin talking about any of these things, I'm like, oh, my goodness. That would be great, (laughs) right? I can see how that would be both a practical application, but also a fascinating scholarly experience. Oh, thanks for having me. I I, I really enjoy um, thinking about all these things. Yeah. Well, uh, so we've been talking today with Candy Can, editor of the new collection, Dying to Eat, Cross-Cultural Perspectives of Food, Death, and the Afterlife, uh, published with University of Press Kentucky, uh, University Press of Kentucky in 2018. Thank you so much, Candy, for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Carrie. It's been a pleasure.